So I think everything needs to start on the business side first. Mm -hmm. So ideally, that's very clear for everybody where the business, what what the uh, five year plan, if you will, for the business is so that anything else is a strategy to support that plan. Right. Otherwise, it's kind of just wishful thinking. If if you want to go to Mars from a data perspective, how can you create models for the company to be able to do that? But then if the company doesn't want to get there, then it's pointless. So yeah, that's why it's, you need a business to take that first step. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that'll encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash A-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is an award-winning data governance and business intelligence leader and public speaker. He's the founder of Lights on Data and its YouTube channel, where he focuses on providing informative content such as online courses, templates, guides, best practices, articles, white papers, and other useful resources to help you with your data governance and data management questions and challenges. Today, he's here to talk to us about why data governance and stewardship, as well as master data management, is something that data scientists should care about, be paying attention to, and spending some time learning about. So please help me welcoming our guest today, co-host of Lights on Data Show, George Farrakhan. George, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on to the show, my friend. Appreciate having you here. Thank you so much, Harpreet. It's it's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, absolutely, man. Like it's the first time we've connected personally one-on-one, so I'm excited for that. I know we're, we were involved in some group chats and I've, I've had the privilege of having you in my happy hour been there a couple of times. So it's great to, to finally be able to connect with you. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about you, man. So let's, let's start by talking about where you grew up and what it was like there. I grew up in Romania, which is a country in Eastern Europe. Hence my accent. You can probably tell it's not a Canadian accent, but that's where I'm from. I moved out of there when I was about 15, but I had the most wonderful childhood there. I, I, I would think just because of the people close to me and family and they really offer me a, an amazing life and all these experiences, which really range from, you know, working in the garden and playing with farm animals all the way from to, you know, being in the city and doing city stuff. Went through a, you know, revolution, the whole communist regime, all that stuff. So that was an experience on its own as well. That's kind of always sticking with me, even though I was seven years old, but yeah, you know, it's all these fragments that I have in, in the back of my mind that really made me who I am today, I guess. So when you're like high school age, when you, so you came to, to Canada in, 
you said you're 15 ish years. Yeah, old. I was in, I started grade 10 in Canada. So I only had three years before I went to university. So I spent three years in a Canadian high school. And at that point in time, like, what did you think your future was going to look like? What, what did you have your aspiration set on? You know, and it did change from year to year, depending on what I was being exposed to. But I think initially I, I thought I was more into design, industrial design. I was playing a lot in AutoCAD, which was one of my favorite courses to take. So that was quite, you know, revealing to me. And I thought it could put some of my artistic passion into work. And then, although I, I realized I'm not a good drawer by hand. And even though I might be good on the digital medium, I can do almost anything by hand on paper. So I thought, okay, well, maybe that's not for me. And in the last year of university, I've kind of continued one of my passions on programming or passions at the time, because that also changed. So I thought I was going to be a programmer. I think by the time I finished high school, I thought I was going to do just hard, hard coding and uh, do web development and things like that, which I did end up doing for a few years. But your stuff is still artistic, man. Like you still are flexing that artistic and creative muscle with the content that you're putting out for your YouTube channel and just like your, your writing and stuff. Like you, the quality of your videos, man, is so freaking awesome. How did you get into, into this, this visual, is it called visual design, video design? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. You know what? I, like I always wanted to do almost everything. Oh, I wanted to do a, to be a little bit good at everything. You know, not not master necessarily one profession. So because of that, I was trying to learn on the side all these different things, including Photoshop and Illustrator and, you know, InDesign and Premiere. Yes, all of these that do have the artistic side of things, as it was something that I thought on the past time, it's a different part of my brain that I'm flexing from what I'm learning. And uh, then, you know, you see all these YouTubers or other people that are maybe also making an income out of this. And I thought, oh, that could be a path for me. So I started doing vlogging for fun. And uh, that sort of uh, branched into nothing at one point. But it was fun and it really I learned out of it. And it's a skill that I'm applying in my, you know, data videos today. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. Like that's my philosophy of learning skills is combining skills in unique ways. So I'm a fan of people who are able to do that and execute on it in such a inventive way right because it's really hard to be the best like top one percent in one particular domain let alone two or three particular domains but you get good enough at a few different domains and you find an intersection between those you can be the best in that intersection so for you it's like okay you're definitely top 25 percent when it comes to to creating videos and things like that combine that with your expertise in data governance and now you're the best data governance <laughs> youtuber right so that's that's the unique way to combine. And maybe, maybe the only one. Uh, not too many people like to talk about this dry topic. Dude, only is better than best. I guarantee you. <laughs> only is better than best. So yeah, I was, I was really into CAD and stuff when I was in, in high school. I had a teacher, however, who made it miserable for me. And I dropped that interest. And it's interesting how teachers can have an effect. Like there's two classes that I really enjoyed. Yeah, but was really dissuaded because of, of the teachers. It's chemistry and CAD. So I, I think about alternate realities. Like I could have ended up as a chemist. And Herpreet, you know, I was actually thinking about the same thing a few weeks ago because I had a most horrible experience in in Jolin High where I did have to take chemistry, and we had the most awful teacher. And I thought I was not good at it, and ah, oh, it was such a displeasure to be in that class. And I thought this is 
that's so complex. And then in university, I had to take chemistry 101 as part of my science bachelor. And I was just terrified because I knew I did badly, poorly in it. And then I had the privilege of being taught by the most wonderful chemistry teacher. And I excelled in that class. And then I was thinking, like you said, what if I had, I would have had much better teacher earlier on, maybe I would have been a chemist. So that's true. Teachers have such a huge power and responsibility over kids. So what was the nudge that got you into data then? What was the experience that you had that, that made you realize that data was right for you? Was it a great teacher? Was it just by means of working through it? How did you get involved in this data space? It was working through it because, so I did early on in my career, I continued as a programmer. And afterwards, I really liked the interaction that we had at times through the business analysts with the customers and kind of understanding what their needs are and how we are solving them how we can program a solution for them and how it's being used and what the stories that come out of it. And then I started transitioning to the technical project management field. And that gave me even more exposure with seeing the impact and also better understanding the importance of data and in particular, the quality of the data that it has on how it should be collected and how it should be maintained. And ultimately, what's the end result out of it? How do we draw information out of it through a software or visualization tool or whatnot? And so that's sort of how I transitioned and found this role that was a data quality manager role. And then I realized, I, I kind of learned on the job that you can't have proper data quality without that this data governance aspect. So uh, that propelled me into where I am today. Yeah, like, because as data scientists, machine learning practitioners, we're end users of the data, right? At the mm-hmm. end of the day, mm-hmm. we don't get to see like the whole lineage of everything that happens before, right? All the data strategy and the data management and government governance that goes into place for us to be able to use that data to create whatever it is that we're doing. But I'm, I'm just curious, from your perspective, what do you think the role of data is in this new century, in the 21st century and beyond? Well, ideally is to empower people to empower people to make better decisions that are just based on facts and not just hunches and, you know, trends and statistics. So yeah, ideally it's to empower people in, uh, not just in your workplace, but even you as a citizen, I think we are impacted by data every day in everything that we do. And we definitely care a lot about it. When we take a look at our bank statement, we, we care that that's correct. That's based on proper numbers there, right? So I know you, uh, you, you like to push business leaders to think that or adopt the mindset that data actually is a asset. You should be valuing it as an asset, not just entirely as a cost. Yes. So talk to us about that, that kind of guiding principle you have. Well, so businesses have assets. That's a no-brainer. The two most obvious ones out there are, well, financial assets, everything that you're, you're touching in, you know, physically, your computer, your, your desk, and so forth and so on, plus the intangible assets. But also us as employees, right? We, from a human resources perspective, we're also assets. And of course, data should be an asset as well. And we should treat it as such. So for treating, for, for managing the financial assets where we have the finance department for managing people as an asset, we have HR. So if we were to focus on the financial assets as, as an example, right? Well, who's managing it? 
accountants for the most part. And accountants, accountants are really governed by sort of principles and policies, and they're being checked by auditors. And auditors are ensuring that the correct management practices of the financial assets are taking place. So there, there's no cooking the books. And what I'm seeing is that similarly, we should have that in place for data. So whatever principles, policies, and auditing is accomplishing for the financial assets, data governance really accomplishes for the data side of things as well. So that leads me to the next term. What mm. the heck is data governance anyway? I got a bunch of terms here that, that I'm going to ask you about because I'm, I myself, I'm not too familiar with them. I've only recently come across all these different terms and uh, I'm, I'm betting the audience probably is a little bit unfamiliar, unclear about these terms as well. So let's start with data governance. Like, what is this all about, anyways? So, DEMA is, you know, that's one issue with data governance. There are too many definitions for it. If you Google data governance, you'll find a lot of confusion because there might be some overlap, but also some contradictory uh, definitions there. But DEMA is, who's kind of the authority when it comes to data management, and they're, they're seeing data governance is part of data management. And they're, Describing it as the exercise of authority controlled and shared decision making over the management of data assets. So again, it's it's this body, it's this business function that creates those principles, those policies, those standards that should be followed organization wide. So like let's kind of think about it in, in terms of real world, right? Let's say data is is generated as a byproduct of some activities, whether that's interacting through some system or even just let's say coming into a doctor's office and having them write down whatever your measurements and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So at what point in the process, like how, how does data governance impact that? Does data governance say, okay, for you people who are doing data entry, these are the things that you need to put in these fields. They could take on these values. If you put something wrong in, we'll flag it. Is that where the governance aspect comes into play or am I kind of not grasping that correctly? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. So let, let's come back to that and think of HR again. So HR is the one responsible that's creating those job descriptions. They're creating the process for, well, here's the career progression that one could take. Maybe start as a data analyst, then you become a senior data analyst. Maybe then you become a data scientist. These are the pay grades for everything. These are the responsibilities. If you want to fire somebody, this is the process, right? So... HR doesn't do all of that. Sometimes this is under a, a manager's responsibility on how to manage their own team. If they want to promote somebody or fire somebody or hire somebody, they tend to do that themselves. Sometimes they're being helped by HR, but whatever they do, they're really doing it based on all these HR processes, policies, and guidance that they're getting. So they're not just running amok and, you know, offering a 1 million salary to somebody just because they think they can. No, they have to abide by the rules that HR is putting, even though it's this manager that's acting on those rules. So back to your example, yes, data governance kind of creates all of that and tells people, well, anybody that's doing data entry, you should respect these standards. These are the standards that are taking place. Now, they're also doing that again with the help of the direct managers of the data entry people. It's not the data governance office that's knocking on your door and keeps track of it all the time. They're putting those processes in place and the framework for managers to also be able to do that or what they sometimes call data stewards. Yeah, that, that's another, another term that quite unclear about either. 
<clears throat> so data steward. So can anybody be a data steward? Like, what does that mean? And even with this, there's uh, different thoughts of it. So Bob Siner, Robert Siner, who, who's quite known in the field of data governance, data stewardship, he says that everyone is a data steward because everybody's touched and impacted by data. And even though they might just be visualizing it, they're not changing it. They need to have some sort of a responsibility to flag if something is incorrect or to ask the questions or contribute to those business needs and so forth and so on. There are others on the other side who are saying, well, no, data stewardship is like a, a particular role that you can add on as a responsibility on top of other job responsibilities, or you're calling somebody on data steward, but it's a very niche role that's well-defined and not everybody will do it because you, you're not going to expect for the VP to be a data steward, right? They might know of its importance, but uh, you're not going to expect them to go and do data entry or raise an issue and things like that. So it depends, depending on the philosophy and whatever you choose to adopt their companies, for example, I think Udemy is one of them, that things that, or it treats everybody as a data analyst or a data scientist. Not as, even though that's not their job description, but they're offering in-house training for anybody that wants to dwell further into their data, they have the opportunity to do so because they think those with the business knowledge over those areas would be able to create some insights or even come up with some questions that a data scientist otherwise in its own department would, would never think of it because they don't have that exposure. So again, there are companies that think everybody is a data scientist, even though that's not their responsibility, but they have the opportunity to be one. And it's a similar fashion, companies that think everybody is a data steward. Awesome. Thank you for that. And excellent point about data analysts, data scientists, the folks stick around. We're going to talk about the difference between the two because George just released an awesome video oh, boy. earlier today, which by the time you guys hear this, it'll be way far in the future, but I'll link to it. But, but. I digress. So just, just so the data scientists in the audience can, can kind of understand how data governance is impacting, let's say, the, the day-to-day work that they do. So whenever we're perhaps getting access to like a database, right, we don't have access to every single database in the entire company. There's certain select ones that we might have access to, but certain ones that we might have to send a ticket to IT, then IT has to check whether we have the right clearance and then they have to get it to mm-hmm. escalate to the manager, so on and so forth. Would those kind of things be what data governance touches on? Yeah. So in that particular example, data governance would work very closely with like the privacy office or whatever you're calling it, privacy and security or something of the sort. But data governance works behind the scenes a little bit before that, finding a way to classify that data to know should should we consider giving Harpreet access to this one or it's maybe above his pay grade or uh, it's not in his job function to actually be able to see like the salary data that he's asking for. Yeah, so that's one of the things that data governance is trying to do behind the scenes before I guess the security team or the IT team is able to grant your request. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. That kind of helps helps me get a better understanding of, of kind of where data governance like impacts us, how it fits into the pipeline and everything. So thank you for that. So there's a couple of the terms that I'm really not familiar with that I'm hoping you can help help me clear up on. Yeah. It's metadata, master data. Like what what do these have to do with data? First of all, what are these things? Why do they sound so similar? And what do they have to do with data governance? 
Yeah. Well, uh, let's start with metadata. So metadata is described, and I don't like this definition, but it's described as data about data. That doesn't tell us too much. But the way I like to think of it is through this example. So let's say you have the value 10. That's a piece of data, though it doesn't tell you much. If we say 10 years, well, that's a piece of metadata already, years, because it's putting the number 10 in context. But even that, that's not enough. You know, is it years of a product? Is it years of a person? Years of a company? So all of that information kind of adds on and gives us what's called business metadata. There's also technical metadata, which uh, like for the number 10, it will tell us that it lives in this table for this column. It's flagged as an integer. It shouldn't be a double, you know, things like that. So that's the technical metadata stuff. And this information is really what data governance is trying to govern is one of the things is trying to find consensus into these definitions, who should be defining it, who should own it, who's responsible for it. And then what are the data quality standards? What are the rules, processes for pulling this information, surfacing it, and again, providing that proper context? Speaking of understanding shared terminology and and things like that, like you've got an awesome course that's up that's a business glossary course, right? Yeah. That that would kind of be helpful. Uh, The first time I ever heard of the term business glossary was, you know, as I started embarking on this data strategy journey that I somehow found myself leading the charge for and yeah so business glossary it's it's you got an awesome course on it you got an awesome uh, write-up on it as well be sure to, to link to that in the show notes oh i appreciate it yes and again that that covers that business metadata that i was mentioning okay and so th- then what's the so master data yeah master data versus metadata what's the so master data is is what's called data about the business entities that provide context for business transactions. So let's think of them as the most commonly found categories in your business. So things like customer, that's the most obvious one, employees, um, suppliers, products, anything that we can tie in transactional data to. It's things that don't usually change as much. It's, it, it tends to be non-transactional in nature. And so these types of data, like why should data scientists care about this? Well, so with metadata, you need to care about it to, again, get the context and understand it and know how should you work with it in your algorithms if you need to, especially if you need to do any transformations to it. And again, getting the context with the master data, the issue is an organization tends to have multiple systems that stores the similar version of the data or the same data about the same master data. So you uh, basically have George Freakan as the customer. That's a master data instance. But you can find some information about George in the HR system and the, I don't know, online shopping system in your CRM and maybe some other spreadsheets as well. And as a data scientist, usually you want to get the full picture in order to estimate something about this, this George person. And so you need to, you need to make sure that if there's ever contradictory information about George, maybe the age might be different in two systems. You need to understand, well, which one should you trust and what do you do in such cases where it's contradicting each other? Awesome, man. Thank you so much for that. That really helps me understand the difference between these terms and give me a better picture as to 
as to what they mean and, and, and how they fit into this, the life cycle of data. So let's get more into kind of data governance in action in the workplace, starting off with whether it's ever too late for an organization to start implementing a data governance program. Definitely not. No, I think it's instrumental for various reasons, but I think it's really bringing that clarity over in so many areas on how data should be managed as an asset. So no, I don't think it's ever too late. I don't know if it's ever too early either. And when you look at data governance in, in certain ways, we all practice parts of it. It's just not really formalized. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, I'm at a company that's been around for well over like 70 years and really haven't implemented a data strategy and really going through a digital transformation. So that that's a positive sign, but no data governance in place. And it's really difficult to try to wrap my head around, okay, man, how the heck do I even start? Like, first of all, I don't know much about data governance and then I've got to make it part of my role. I don't even know how to start. So maybe you can help us understand how you would go about designing a data governance program for our organizations, assuming that our organization lacks one and, and how you'd see that play out over 30, 60, 90 days. Right. Well, first, I think you need to understand the driver. Why do, we, why do you need to have data governance in place? And the reason why you need to understand that driver, what's the motivation for investing resources into it? Yes, we need it, but data governance can cover so many different areas and you have so many different data sets, and data stores and different types of master data that you can't really focus on everything at once. So you need to understand the driver in order to see where should you prioritize your efforts. And why I'm saying this is because for a lot of companies, for example, years ago when GDPR came into place, that was the driver. It was some sort of a regulatory compliance. They were going to get in trouble if they didn't have policies, processes in place, a clear understanding where their data lives, lives, who's the owner, if they need to retrieve it or delete it, what is the process in doing so? Uh, so that was the motivator. And for a lot of companies, this is really one of the big motivators. And because that's the motivator, then that's where they're investing their efforts into. For others, there's some sort of, um, I don't know, business imperative. I kind of use this as an umbrella for a few drivers. So sometimes we see it as, you know, we as a company, we want to invest in, in business intelligence or we want to do data science or start harnessing the power of big data. So kind of vague demands like this, or it's something a little bit more business centric, such as we want to improve the overall efficiency of our organization or improve the customer satisfaction. So kind of data science, data analytics questions, right? And, uh, but the, the idea of why I'm including this under this one driver as a business imperative is because they all go under the idea of knowing what are those best decisions to make based on data. Now, that being said, maybe the driver that kind of ties it all together, it's improving the quality of the data. And nobody's kind of asking for that, but you do need to achieve that first if you want to do everything else, even if you want to achieve that regulatory compliance. Does it make sense so yeah. far? Yeah, so far so good. Can, can we get some clarity around the term when you say business driver? What what does that mean? Is that like a business driver is just something like um, this is a, a proposed benefit that we'll get from doing this thing? 
Yeah. So it's, it's uh, one business driver could be, listen, we need to cut down costs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because this and that, because we lost revenue due to COVID and we need to kind uh, cut some costs, but we need to understand where we might need to cut some costs from our supply chain mm-hmm. management process, or we want to attract more customers, or we're seeing that we're getting bad feedback on our some of our products or the customer experience. So we want to improve that. How do we go about doing it? How do we uh, improve our market reach over in the US? Because that's where we're lacking for whatever reason. So we need the help of the data to see where would we make the biggest impact. So in these roles, let's say when, when we're trying to implement a data uh, governance strategy mm-hmm. and when it comes to business drivers, they should, should they come from like the, the executive team? Like they, are they the ones that kind of mandate the business driver or is it up to the data governance folks who are working on this initiative to maybe talk to a bunch of people and then figure out what is common amongst them that kind of rises up to the top and then use that as drivers. Like, I guess my question is, is how do we identify a driver? So ideally, it does come from the top. Uh, ideally, data governance is going to support and the data strategy overall, it will support those business needs. So what is the goal of the organization at a high level? But then for this this year or next year, what are we trying to achieve there? And uh, oftentimes, businesses have you know some clear metrics in place. Hey, we want to increase revenue year after year by 2%, which is nuts because you won't, it's impossible to always keep on increasing, but that's another conversation, right? But they, they have these targets that they need to achieve and the data strategy part of it, I think needs to figure out how can we support you to do that with the power of data? Okay. Okay. So, so if you had like, let's just say a shot to speak with like a CEO of an organization and you wanted to figure out what the CEO's concerns were around data governance. Would you just like say, hey, what are your concerns around data governance? Or is there kind of a, a business way to ask the question so that we can translate it into our own lingo? Yeah, I, no, I don't think I would ask him about data governance or data quality or anything. <laughs> Scott Taylor really mentions that a lot as well yeah. is that no, execs don't care about the quality of the data. I mean, they care, but they don't, they don't want to hear it. They, that's not what they, they care about. So I think you need to find out what their pain points are and ask them, you know, what are you struggling with on a daily basis, maybe? And there, are, there might be an exec that would say, you know what, every time I'm asking for this report, I'm, I'm getting a, sort of a different answer. Or, you know, I'm, I'm asking three different departments about how many new customers we have, and I'm getting all these different totals. It might not differ by much, but it's something that I'm struggling with. And there's reasons why, but that's one issue that they're getting. Or why can't I just have these on demand? I just want to have the report and, and or see the dashboard whenever I want to. Why is it so painful to, to get that, you know, in a timely fashion? Yeah, man, thanks so much for that. I appreciate that because, you know, as a data scientist myself, really just a stat over glorified statistician like the last 10 years of my life has been primarily just doing what felt like homework to me like it was just grad school like you know what I mean so having to think in these business terms it's been quite a shift in mindset for me and having people like yourself and and Scott Taylor 
to to help educate us in very tremendous in my in my learning journey so so thank you for that and thank you for answering my dumb questions but i pr- appreciate oh they're not dumb <laughs> but yeah anytime and i'm glad that i can i can help but i also wanted to just wrap up the first question that you had in terms oh, of yeah. what are those steps yeah, yeah, yeah because yes you do need to get the drivers to understand where should you first invest your resources in but the 30 60 90 day is to me the first 30 days again is that understanding piece and assessing the environment especially when you're coming into a new role or if you're coming into a new company, I find we all come in with our own assumptions based on our previous experience and so forth and so on, which is not always valid. And I think it's hindering if you're not investigating further. So first, you need to understand the entire environment, you know, business and technical as well. In the next 30 days, that's when you should start putting that this data governance framework together, you know, start creating that council, which is this high, the highest body, governing body in data governance, if you will. You have all these business representatives that are basically deciding on behalf of the business, this is where we should focus our efforts on. Yeah. And then find out what the scope of data, the data governance program should be, the first set of priorities. Uh, you should start creating the domain model and let me know if you want me to go into that. Yeah, so this data governance council, man. When you, anytime somebody mentions council, I just immediately think of like Yoda, Yoda and, and the Jedi, <laughs> Jedi council. So, like this council, ideally, what would be the types of individuals that we would want to see on the council? I so ideally, you would have executives. Ideally, you would have the highest representatives in your business be present in this council, and it doesn't always happen. So there's ways around it. It's sometimes it's not good to have all the execs because you also need to think of kind of their own personality and how they might be clashing. So there's a lot of politics involved as well. That's why you also should have a very good moderator, a mediator, facilitator in these meetings. But that's, I guess, another topic I'm diverging there a bit. Yeah, no, no, that's that's interesting. Yeah, because we're talking about how if we're meeting with execs, CEO level, like we don't just flat out talk about data governance. We try to get to data governance by asking other types of questions and assessing mm-hmm. different points. So when it is time to actually put together like the data governance council, do we just say, all right, we're going to, we are the data governance council. We want you guys to talk to us about data governance. Do we be transparent like that? Or how do we entice them to join the council? Like how do we tell them that this is going to be a, a benefit of their time? That's definitely a tough one. It kind of needs to be part of that business business case that you need to make. I, I, that's why it's always helpful to have some sort of a sponsor towards this. So you're not just managing from the bottom up, but you do have somebody as a senior level. You, you maybe have the president or the CEO or a C-level executive that's really endorsing this whole data governance program. And they're the ones that could get that message across to the other executives coming from a high level individual definitely has a, can have a lot of weight. So let's say somebody's got, you know, some, there's a brave data scientist out there. Let's just call him Harpreet just because mm-hmm. a fictional character who, who, who has the backing of, let's say the CIO. What are the biggest challenges you foresee Harpreet facing when he's starting out a data strategy at this massive organization? Oh, plenty. I mean, it's, first of all, uh, I think we are blinded by the entire ocean piece. There are a lot of areas to tackle and how do we just choose one cup out of it to, to boil it once? 
So I think that's one. And that's where, again, some, some guidance from somebody that sits at that strategic level would help to give this individual some insight as to where should we focus on? Because whatever you're presenting to the council, you can't give them a blank slate either. You got to come well prepared and give them options as well as, you know, your opinion as to where or how should they vote on things. You know, in the end, they're kind of just there to make the decisions, not necessarily create the decisions or the options, if you will. So all the work is kind of done for them and they just maybe read over it, understand the impact, the repercussions of choosing one option over the other. And then they're just there to give the stamp of approval. So it sounds like I am in for a, uh, a long bit of time where I'll be having nightmares, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, like in so many ways, it's not a rewarding role to be in because it, it tends to be a lot of convincing and understanding all these pain points and everybody else's has a different communication style on how to get that message across, right? Some people are more visual. Some people prefer some sort of a personal story that they could relate to. So it's, it helps to understand how they prefer for things to be, to be com- communicated to them. Oh, speaking of nightmares, speaking of stories. <laughs> What can Stephen King teach us about data governance? <laughs> right. I've done a, a video a while ago. Yeah. And I don't remember all the, the different things that I was drawing a parallel, parallel thing on. But I, I know the first one that he was mentioning is that you have three months. And he, was, he wrote this book on how to write books, basically how to write novels. And he was giving all these pieces of advice. And I thought, oh, you know, some of these really apply to data governance as well. So one of them was that the fact that you have three months, you have three months to kind of get an idea in there and start writing your book. If you're dwelling on it a lot longer, you're just not going to get anywhere. So get, give yourself three months to create a rough draft. And kind of the same is said about data governance. From the moment where you get that approval, you have three months to show something, to produce something, because otherwise it's just going to be lengthened out and people are going to lose their patience and they're going to forget about it, kind of lose that momentum. So ideally within those three months, start something, you know, maybe put in those guiding principles together or figure out who should be on the council, create a mission, something. So yeah, just touch back on that, that principles you're mentioning. That's something I meant to talk about earlier. So the, uh, is it DEMA, they've got Mm -hmm. these set of principles that they use and and they have principles associated with all these various different slices of the, uh, let's just say data Data management. Yeah. Yeah. So what what are these principles? How do we identify the principles? Well, so I I have a few of them. Um, And the first one, and I think the overarching one is that data is a strategic enterprise asset and should be managed as such. Straightforward, I think I mentioned that a few times, but I think that should be the guiding principle that we want to treat data as an asset, right? The other piece maybe comes from the master data point of view is that there's only one version of the truth for our enterprise data, which then needs to be actively managed and that's trustworthy. And I think this sentence alone encompasses so many things. The fact that we need to have that ownership, we need to have the quality of it, and we need to have that one version of the truth, even though we might have different versions of it, we need to choose only one of them. 
and, and there are many others, you know, the fact that it needs to, your our data practices need to comply with legal and uh, regulatory requirements and internal policies and things like that. And so we're, we're talking earlier about business drivers. Now we got an idea of what principles are. Does it make sense to combine these two together, like combine principles and drivers together in order to do what? Yes, but I think that drivers can change also from year to year. Mm-hmm. And ideally, your program would be nimble enough to address them, whereas principles, I think they're, they would withstand the test of time, so to speak. You know, it's kind of like high level stuff. Let's be ethical, regardless of the driver. That's the principle that we always follow. We, we go back to our principle and say, well, we're embarking on this project and how we're doing things, but are we still ethical? Yes. Okay. Let's move, move on. Perfect, man. That, that makes complete sense. That clarifies it for me a lot, actually. So let's talk more about data strategy. Mostly like, like I mentioned, like I'm, I'm, I am navigating the labyrinth as as Dama likes to say. So I've got a, I've been I've been wading through so many books here, man. I've got Navigating Labyrinth, Modern Data Strategy, the Data Management Toolkit. I got Scott Taylor's book here as well. It's it's becoming extremely challenging for me as a data scientist who just loves writing code and building models and deploying things to production to now think about everything that happens before I get my hands on the data. And I, I think this is such an interesting place to work you know this juncture that i'm at in my career because i'm getting a little bit of the clouds a little bit of the dirt right i'm seeing things from both ends so i guess what does data strategy have to do with helping us get ahead in our data careers so at a high level the data strategy is really that set of set of choices and set of decisions that brought together they they kind of charted high level course of action to achieve our business goals Right. And to me, all of this really ties in with anything that has to do with data, because part of the data strategy could be, well, we need to grow our data science team or we need our data science team to achieve these things or help us come up with questions and answers on how to address these business needs. And in the end, it's, you know, part of a, a subset of that data strategy could be you know, listen, we've noticed that as data scientists, you guys take quite a little bit of time to deliver that end result because 80% of your time is being spent on cleansing that data or transforming it before. So why don't we just focus our resources there and see if we could decrease that time? So I guess, like, how can we help our organizations define a data strategy if we find ourselves in this position of having to to build a data strategy out, like what are some things that we should think of? Like we, we talked about the different terms, right? There's data management, there's master data management, there's metadata management and data governance, I guess. Do all of these things happen concurrently all at once? Or is there like a chicken and egg problem going on here? Like where does one start? So I think everything needs to start on the business side first. Mm-hmm. So ideally, that's very clear for everybody where the business, what, what the uh, five-year plan, if you will, for the business is. So that anything else is a strategy to support that plan, right? Otherwise, it's kind of just wishful thinking. If, if you want to go to Mars from a data perspective, how can you create models for the company to be able to do that. But then if the company doesn't want to get there, then it's pointless. So that, yeah, that's why it's, it, you need the business to take that first step. And 
did, are there any blueprints that, that kind of exist to help create a data strategy? If so, like how, how do we even use the blueprints? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And yes, I would say that there, there are in some aspect, I could think of maturity models as an idea on how it could offer you a blueprint because the maturity model is kind of giving you a way to assess where you are, but not only that, to let you know what the next step in that strategy should be. And then having the delta between them two, you kind of see what steps you should take. Speaking of maturity models that you gave me some access to your course, man, which I'm grateful for. I really enjoyed that course. And again, maturity model was something I had no idea about until recently, until like a year ago. So what, what the heck are my maturity models? Like what are they all about and why on earth are there so many of them? So, uh, yeah. So as I mentioned, it's really just a way for an organization to assess their improvement in a particular discipline. And you can have maturity models for data governance, for data management in general, for even data science, things for AI. So there's all kinds of maturity models, but it really offers a company a way to, to see where they are today, where they were yesterday. Is there an improvement or not? Where they want to be tomorrow and how do they get there? Yeah, I'll definitely be sure to link to that course. And I think you had like a really cool blog post about it as well uh, that I really enjoyed. So I'll link to both of those in the show notes. Thank you. And as to why there's so many, well, everybody has their take on it. And a lot of these maturing models are tend to be tied to the usage of software and tools. So normally you would have all these software vendors that are trying to sell you the blueprint for the data strategy. And as part of the blueprint is, well, if you get to use this one, you work to advance. If you get to use our tools or even our consulting services or whatnot, then uh, so it's, yeah, a, a way for them to pitch in whatever they're selling. Can we have the George Frickan maturity model? Does that exist? No, it doesn't. No. <laughs> so how do we get buy-in then from, from leadership to go along with this, with this harebrained idea we've got to implement a data strategy? It's going to give them all this benefit, but I can't articulate what the benefit is that it's going to give to them or show them anything tangible. How do we, how do we start about getting the buy-in? Yeah, and it's definitely a tough, tough piece to calculate that return on investment. Sometimes that's what they care about. If they're a financial driven person, they want to see if I'm going to invest this, what are the cost savings that I'm going to get out of it? There's different calculations that you could, you could create to show how um, having data governance in place, data quality management piece in place could save on you know, data quality errors. And again, as I mentioned, there's different types where you can calculate it if you're catching the data quality error at entry or while it's part of a report or what happens if it's actually used and transformed into information, which tends to be bad information if it's based on wrong data. So you could, yeah, base it on that, which is very straightforward calculation. I think the first one is like $10 or no, $1, $10, $100 as an estimate. I think it's something that Deloitte or IBM initially put together. So you can refer to that. Or you can even think there's different surveys that show the amount of time spent by data scientists or just by the business information worker on how much time they spend to look for information, look for data, run reports. So you can use that as a basis on, well, let's tackle these issues and how we can improve it. 
or that regulatory compliance piece. I forgot which bank was just fined last November of like $400 million because they didn't have data governance in place. Uh, They didn't have proper privacy and security practices. That could be another good example to compare yourself to your industry peers and see where they hit by a, a fine and what's the cost avoidance of that. So that's kind of the stick method. And the care method, again, I think is to see what could be done with these cool AI machine learning projects that you could do. But you need to have the data and clear understanding of it and not have to keep on cleaning it every time. And even that, there might be data that you don't have in place. So how can we get there? Well, we need to have this infrastructure in place first. Man, that's been such a wonderful conversation about data governance. I've definitely learned a lot, both through your videos, through the online course that you gave me access to, which I really enjoyed. Uh, and just this, this conversation as well. Let's transition. Anytime, Harpreet. Oh yeah, appreciate it, man. Let's transition the conversation towards a video that you recently put out, which I found fascinating. So talk to us about, talk to us about your, your most recent video where you talk about data analysts versus data scientists and like all the effort that you put into creating that, man. Walk us through what you did there. Yeah, well, so I do work with uh, data analysts as part of my team and they're amazing people. They're a lot smarter than I am. And I feel very privileged with everything that they're doing and teaching me. And there's always that discussion happening, you know, live or online as to what the difference is between a data analyst and a data scientist. So being that I am in data governance, I kind of want to find and provide clarity overall. So I was starting to do some research and I started by looking at all these different job descriptions to see what what do companies think these two roles are. And I was confused. After a hundred or so job descriptions, I came more confused than I was in the beginning. So I thought, okay, well, that's not going to take me anywhere. Though I found some overlaps, which I documented, and that's helped me uh, create some of the content for the course. And then I also looked into a bunch of articles and white papers, especially from universities to kind of see how, how they, uh, what they think of it all. So overall, it's not a hundred percent clear to me yet, but I, I hope I did provide some, some guidance by looking at the, uh, the scope of both roles, the, the skills required in both uh, the, that education and experience that's needed and Indian, also the salary that comes tagged to uh, to each role. So it was definitely a process. It took a while. And then I kind of spent the weekend to film and edit and compile. And that, that was my free fun time that was spent on this video. Yeah, it's an interesting way that you did that, man. It's like a lot of effort to, to, to go in and, and really do this compare and contrast. And like, what would you say? Like, what, like, what was the biggest takeaway from undergoing all this effort? Like, what, what is the difference between data scientists and data analysts? Is it I know you said you're confu- more confused coming out than you were going in, but was <laughs> there anything that can definitively make one a analyst or, or a scientist? Well, in the, in the end, I, I think I did find a difference, but again, I think it's also reflecting my own opinion. So, and that's something that I'm stating in the video, the fact that if you disagree, please let me know. And, you know, what is your take on it? Some people identify one or the other, or they identify themselves as a data analyst, though from other people's perspective, they might have data scientists responsibilities in there. So to me, the data analyst is really focusing more at a micro level on, on a particular question, such as how do we increase revenue in this area? Or why did our marketing effort 
went better in this area versus the other. And they're mostly answering that question through descriptive analytics and looking at some sort of a structured data set. Whereas the data scientists, I found that they're more at this macro level working with structured and unstructured data and not necessarily answering this question, but maybe coming up with this question too. So let me give you an example, actually. We'll go back to HR as well. HR is maybe coming to the data science team saying, you know what? We need some help to figure out how could we reduce the spending on recruitment? Help us figure, figure it out. Look at the data, find an answer. And the data scientist is starting to look at you know, all these different data sets to figure out what could they do? What is the, the hypothesis there that they need to formulate? And they figure out actually out of the data that they have access to that there's a high turnover rate in one department. So maybe now the effort should not be on how to reduce the recruitment cost, but can we create some sort of a model where we could identify those people that are on the verge of leaving or they're more likely to leave the company so we could identify them early as a potential risk factor, flight risk, and address that in a timely manner, right? So they're, they're coming up with the question as well as a solution afterwards, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Like I've got a pretty liberal view about data science, dude. To me, like business intelligence, you know, certain business analysts, data analysts, data scientists, machine learning, we're all data scientists at the end of the day. Like we all fit under right. this umbrella of, of data science. I mean, definitely, I mean, I, I definitely feel like data governance, data management, master data management, that's all part of the data science family of, of things. I don't know. That's just my. It's part of the same ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. So you're talking about like structured data, unstructured data, d- dumb question here. Does data governance care about unstructured data or is it only about structured data? Like how's that? Most often it's about structured data or that's the initial focus. And now, you know, again, we, we're thinking about different definitions, mm-hmm. but with unstructured data that covers like documents and PowerPoint presentations, emails, things like videos, that could be seen as part of the information governance, you know, and how do you structure your files and how do you, uh, how, what's the folder structure and how do you assign permissions to those and that whole records management piece. And sometimes it's part of the same, like information governance, data governance, they're part of the same portfolio. Sometimes they're, they're different. There's levels to this stuff, man. There's definitely levels to this stuff. So George, last final question before we get to a random round. Okay. So last formal question rather, not final question. There's still a bunch of questions. So it's a hundred years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? Wow. And Herbreed. I don't quite know. Maybe, maybe this video that I created today or maybe this interview. Hey man, that'd be awesome. I'm sure you'll be remembered for, for doing far greater things than being on this interview, <laughs> but I appreciate that, man. So let's jump into this, man. So you are a YouTuber yourself creating awesome content, awesome videos. When do you think the first video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube will happen and what will it be about? I'm thinking maybe in the next five years. I forgot what, what the highest one is, but it's baby a few. Shark. It's Baby it's Shark. Baby shark. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? I think in the top 10, there's actually a couple other nursery rhymes in there and at least songs that cater to kids, right? So I'm thinking it would, it would be something that's appealing to kids. 
as that first trillion views YouTube video. Nice. Yeah. And when do you think that would, you said five years. Okay. So five years. Yeah. All right. So I've been collecting data on this. I'm going to publish, publish this research in, in, in the future. It'll be groundbreaking. <laughs> so maybe you'll be remembered for the guy who got the prediction about the one trillion views. Absolutely right. <laughs> so in your opinion, what do most people think within the first few seconds of meeting you for the first time? I think they're thinking, why do I have such unruly hair? I think the first impact is it, sort of visual, you know, and that's sort of the visual aspect. My hair is out of control most of the time. You used to have long hair, right? Like you used to, to, to work. Yeah, longer, right? yeah. 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 And my wife really prefers longer hair. So we always have this argument and how, you know, how much I could uh, have the haircut. Well, it looks yeah. well, speaking of looks, like who do people tell you that you look like? It, Jude Law or Johnny Depp and both don't make any sense. So, yeah. I'd say more like Leonardo DiCaprio, man. That's, that's, <laughs> yes, seriously. Especially since he got a little bit chubby. So I can agree <laughs> with that. <laughs> so what are you currently reading? You know what? I have it right here. I'm reading the series from TED, TED.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, so out of all their their speeches and presentations, they they actually released all these uh, books. And there's one that I'm reading right now that says, how we'll live on Mars. Mm-hmm. So it's a series of three basically presentations in a written format that address this topics. Is, is, uh, is Elon in any of those conversations there? Elon actually is not in here. No. <laughs> what song do you have on repeat? Oh boy. You know what? I need to take a look at the, uh, the name of it because I'm not very good with names, believe it or not. Mm. And uh, one second. So there's a song that I discovered. It's from the seventies, believe it or not. Mm. And it's from, there you go. It's called live for today. Okay. Who's that by, by the grass grassroots. All right. I have to check. That and out. yeah, I listened to it a, a couple of weeks ago. And I thought it was so catchy and so positive. And yeah, I've been playing it ever since. Every time I go out on a walk or I'm feeling down, I like I put it on. Definitely check that out right after this. So I'm going to open up the random question generator. So we real fun here. And the first question out of the random question generator is pet peeves. Okay. You know, when you're using the microwave and maybe you're stopping the microwave before the timer goes out. Mm-hmm. I'm really upset if, if you don't restart that timer, <laughs> you know, and my wife does, does this a lot. And then I, I don't see whatever the, uh, the time is on the microwave or uh, clock there. That's so funny, man. Like <laughs> I, I also try to avoid the final microwave beep, but, yeah. <laughs> but I always reset it. Man. I always <laughs> What's on your bucket list this year? A, a few things. One is a surfing trip which I try and do every year. And ideally, I would love to go travel outside of the country, go someplace warm. I'm really craving for that. Thailand, Mexico, somewhere on a beach. So, so you're a surfer, huh? So how long have you been surfing for? A few, maybe seven years now, but I'm, I'm really bad at it. Though I would imagine you're, you're from California, right? I am, yeah. I've never, I don't even know how to swim, man. I've never surfed and I've never, never gone for... I mean, I've, I've swam, but I'm not really good at it. But that's crazy, man. Seven years you've been surfing. Like, where, where are some crazy places you've been surfing at? 
surfing maybe once or twice a year. So again, maybe that's why I'm not good. We usually go here on the West Coast on Vancouver Island in this oh. area called Tofino. It's yeah, just amazing. Yes. It's beautiful. It's one of my favorite places on the West Coast. So mainly here, but also uh, we visited our Californian friends a few times. So we've tried things there, but it feels overwhelming because there are so many professional surfers in the waters and you just feel inadequate. Yeah, at least you're having fun, man. That's, that's the most important part, right? Yeah. Yeah, Tofino's so, been on my list to, to go to. So, uh, sorry. Let me know. Let me know. I'll, I'll give you a, a private tour. <laughs> nice, man. Let me know. So that, and I also want to finish two courses, like create two courses on data governance. So yeah, you've created quite, quite a few courses. So you got the course on the business glossary, like we we're talking about just now. Mm-hmm. And the course that, that was just about the maturity models. What other courses do you offer? I have another one with a dear friend and colleague, Donabel Santos, which is on data visualization for data storytelling. And it's uh-huh. just really covering best practices on that and how you can tell stories with data visualizations. Oh, very nice. Do you ever sing when you're alone? What songs? I do. I don't want to say what songs I do. I'm a very bad singer. And this is maybe one of the things I wish I, I had like a singing voice. So that's why I do lip syncing sometimes. But I think you're, you're, you've been challenged by Susan Walsh, actually. Have I? Oh, I got to take her up on that, dude. I'll do a lip yeah. syncing challenge. Yeah. Yeah, you have. Are you going to take her up on a lip syncing challenge as well? I, so I challenged her and she challenged you. And then you, you felt like you, you dropped the ball there. Yeah, so, but maybe you've never seen the comment. I, I, gotta, I gotta find that comment. <laughs> I will not back down. Next question here. When people come to you for help, what do they usually want help with? It's usually something technical or something to like my family members, for example, they ask like, oh, can you enhance this photograph for me? Or can you create this like mini video for me? Or uh, show me how to do something with my website or with my social media. So yeah, little things like that. Let's do one more from here. Favorite city? Ooh, besides Tofino. I think I'm really in love with a couple couple places, actually. One is Bali as a region. Been there only once, but I just felt so serene and I really want to go back. Just felt at peace over there. But I really enjoy this, this European city in Italy called Florence. I've been there a couple of times. And again, it's just something about the the vibe and the sunset and yeah, the whole feel of the city might not be the prettiest out of Italy, but it, it just kind of spoke to me. That's awesome, man. So George, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online? Just LinkedIn or lightsondata.com. George, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today, man. Appreciate having you here. Thank you so much for being 